Hey, uh, thank you for your prayers for my family. Um, apparently, you can get other sicknesses besides COVID. Um, so my family's been going through that for the uh, past couple of weeks. But COVID has taught us that if somebody is feeling sick, even a couple of days after, you kind of leave them home. And so Amanda's home with two of our kids just to make sure we don't pass germs on the other people. So um, that is, uh, thank you for your prayers. Thanks, Kyle, for saying that. Um, Hey, in light of the Supreme Court decision this past week of overturning Roe versus Wade, I just, I just want to pray for us uh, in a more pastoral way. Uh, Jim does a great job with, it, with this, but I felt as the leader and pastor of this church, it should come from me. And we're thankful, ultimately thankful, and we praise God for the overturning of Roe versus Wade. It's a big deal. We're excited about it um, overall. But I think we, our country needs prayer right now. It really needs prayer. So I'm going to pray for us. And, and after each, there's, I kind of break up a few sections. And I'm going to say, after each one, I'm going to say, Lord, in your mercy, and I invite you all to respond, hear our prayer. So why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, in, in your word in 1 Timothy chapter 2, you say, First of all, then I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Lord, we pray that this scripture would be true over us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, because your word calls us to this as an act of worship, as a community of Jesus, we lift up all our governing officials, the Supreme Court and lower courts, President Biden and the executive branch, our state governor, Tom Wolf, and all our local officials, state and city. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we pray for just laws and faithful interpretation of those laws. We believe your scriptures say that humans, including the unborn, are made in the image of God and that you are the author of life. We do pray that there will be less abortion and that we would, in our lifetime, come to see a time where abortion becomes unthinkable. We pray for state legislators as there's debate and laws around abortion. But Lord, we pray that there will be less and less and less until there's no more. Not because of a change of law, but because you have changed people's hearts and transformed their minds and they've been persuaded of the truth. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we pray for the women and doctors in tragic cases where the mother's life is at risk and have to consider abortion for difficult and tragic reasons. We believed, too, that women face with, are faced with terrible and difficult decisions regarding pregnancy, and they, too, are made in your image. And we pray that your church would be called, as we are called, but we pray that your church would be there to serve them, to love them, to care for them, and surround them with hope, to show them a, a better way, the way of Jesus. So we do pray for women this morning who are in deep anxiety about the future. 
Lord, we pray all this in your mercy. Your prayer. Lord, we pray for our fellow citizens and even people in this room. There may be disagreement about what all this means and different opinions about all this. And we pray that we would all be formed by your word. Many of us are here of this here are glad of this court's decision, and we give thanks for the overturning of this law. And many are troubled, and our country is deeply divided. Lord, protect pregnancy centers and churches and organizations that seek to help with adoptions in this time, many of which have been threatened and many of which have been vandalized. And so, Lord, we pray protection over our country protection over your people. Lord, help us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. What I'm going to do now, I'm just going to, I'm going to jump into my sermon from here. So uh, I would read the passage, but we'll get to it anyway. So why don't we just jump right in? We're going to be in Judges chapter 6 through 8 today. We're going to do a lot of flipping around uh, but before I get there, I just do want to invite you to the congregational meeting. I know you might be like, oh, like congregational meetings are lame, boring business stuff. And f- truthfully, we do handle some lame, boring business stuff. But it's also really valuable and important. It's, like, it's more like a family meeting. We want you to kind of know what's going on, hear from us about things. Uh, if you're a member, we need you to vote to receive the budget, so it is important that you're there. So I do invite you to come out to that, because there's a lot of cool things that are happening here at Liberty Northeast, and things we hope will happen this year and the next three years, which I'll share about. And we really would love you there to hear it, so you can get behind it and celebrate that and, and back it. Uh, one of the things we're doing is helping, uh, we're trying to help Afghan refugees that are moving into the area. So there's a family that's moved into Northeast Philadelphia, Afghan refugees. Um, many of these refugees were friends and allies of the U.S. government who now can't live in Afghanistan, so they move here. And we want to make sure we're taking care of those people for their sacrifice for our own, our own safety, our own freedom. And one thing they really need are bikes to get around. So if you have gently used bikes that you'd be willing to donate, please come talk to me. We would love to get those to that family so they can get around and get to... They probably haven't found out about Wawa yet, but we want them to have a bike so they know how to get to Wawa. All right? Also, what happened really cool this week, if you look on the screens, about 20 to 25 youth from across the Liberty Communion went down the city to serve the city and uh, do missions there. Uh, Divya, if you just you can just uh, go through some of those slides. There is Divya actually. So, um, what parents, if your kids went on this trip, you can now see your kids can clean up and can do work, despite what they say. So there's Ben doing some work. Zach and I got to go down and worship with them, and and I got to share God's word with them, and it was a really cool time. And uh, this is the group here. You got David, one of our elders, Leah, our liberty, our families coordinator, and you got Divya from right to left. You got Divya, Giselle, and Benjamin. And it's a really great time. And this is a simple way that we can pass on our faith to our children. And one of the things that's really valuable about short-term missions is this, this was an opportunity to bless ministries that were already happening. It wasn't that our youth were going down there to save the city. It was like, we're going to bless the ministries that are already happening. But it also exposes them to things that they probably wouldn't have seen if they stayed home. And so they can see, they can see things like poverty. They got to go to Alpha Care on Friday and got to actually be there. 
soon after the court's decision where AlphaCare was actually threatened and they, and they felt that it was unsafe, so the students actually had to leave at one point. So they're kind of exposed even to those things, these things that, like, that the world is actually is a dark, difficult, and challenging place, but Jesus is the light, and so this gives opportunity for that. So there'll be more shared about that at the congregational meeting from the students and leaders themselves, but for now... Those are some great pictures, and we're happy that they're able to go. We hope to continue to do that, continue to grow in missions, not just locally, but also globally as well. So we're in the summer now, and weather has gotten warmer. And that, for my family, comes with a lot of time outside by our pool and our deck. But with warmer weather comes insects, bugs, And now I noticed that this week in my own household, there's two different reactions to bugs. First by me, with a particular hatred for lanternflies. I don't know what you guys are doing, but I'm killing them like I'm supposed to be killing them. It's like the only thing everybody in our country can agree on is like kill lanternflies. I don't, you guys are do, not doing your job. I, like the hunter-gatherers of old, am going out there and I'm just killing lanternflies and I forge my weapon of dawn, half dawn dish soap and half water in a spray bottle and I'm just spraying them until the bubbles suffocate them and they die. And it's, it's a blast. I really enjoy doing it. And I just, I have a particular hatred for lanternflies. My youngest daughter, on the other hand, caught a gnat this week. One of my other least favorite insects are gnats for their just being a straight up annoying. She caught one in her hand and she said, oh, isn't this cute? And it became clear to me that in the moment that males and females may have different reactions to bugs. Boys typically kill bugs and girls find them cute or call their husbands to kill them because they won't kill them themselves. That's, that hasn't happened to anybody else, apparently. Uh, my house is the only house where I kill the bugs? All right, anyway. But I thought about this a little bit longer. And this is actually a stereotype. It's actually a stereotype to say that men kill bugs and women think they're cute or call their husbands to kill bugs. I'm sure there are men who think that insects are cute or at least enjoyable to have around, like the guys who started the insectarium on Academy Road. I'm sure they, they like bugs. They don't have the hatred that I have for them. And I'm sure w- women have squashed a bug or two in their lifetime, including my own spouse. And if you're here last spring in 2021, we went through this series titled Called Out Ones. And we, in that series, we tackled gender identity and particularly focused on transgenderism. And if you haven't listened to that, I just encourage you to go back and listen to that series that included abortion as well in there. But we talked about transgenderism. And if you were here, you'll remember me saying something like this, that perhaps the main problem is not what someone believes in their head that they are, Perhaps the stereotypes of a man or a woman of what they're supposed to be are the problem. Perhaps the stereotypes are the problem. Because what we like to do is say girls like dolls, dresses, princesses, boys don't. So if your male child likes those things, he must be a girl. 
or boys like superheroes, trucks, and wrestling. So if your female child likes those things, she must be a boy. But those are stereotypes, many which have changed over time. So for instance, pink used to be the baby boy color, and blue was the baby girl color. And then we switched. Now if you dress your boy in pink, you get questions. But it used to be, that was the baby boy color, was pink. Baby pink. So before I continue, young people, or anybody here, if you like something that your friends say makes you girly, or butch, you're not the problem. The stereotypes are the problem. Okay, and I just want to say that. You're not the problem. It's the stereotypes that are the problem. And sometimes we do that with the heroes of the Bible. We stereotype what heroes should be. In the same way we stereotype what boys and girls are, we stereotype what heroes are. Because they don't often fit our stereotypes. Generally speaking, in my experience, Christians have looked at heroic men as strong, buff, skull-cracking dudes. But in the Bible, the strong, buff, skull-cracking dudes are often the ones getting in trouble. Think about Samson. Think about Saul. And it's usually the humble, the hesitant, the sometimes smelly, outside looking in, foolish in the world's eyes, weak people that God uses. And God uses the weak so he can get the glory, not us. And what we'll see today is God's going to make sure that his people know, that you and I know, that they didn't rescue them. He rescued them. That we don't rescue ourselves. He rescues us. And God reveals his power in our weakness to bring himself glory. That God purposely finds us in our weakness and reveals his power in those moments. Why? To bring himself glory. So I want to talk about the way of weakness, and then I want to talk about weakness is where God displays his power, and then weakness is where God meets our needs. So let's look at the way of weakness. Let's jump into Judges 6, verses 1 through 6. Tell me if you heard this before. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. And leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. And they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. 
so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Weakness is the way we're called to live our lives before God. Deborah had given Israel rest for 40 years. And as we've seen, Israel predictably does evil again. And their evil breaks their covenant with God. So God, as they have promised to each other in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that when his people break the covenant, he will have to punish them. And so he does. And he gives them over to the hands of Midian. And the Midian nation is a constant threat to them. And the Midians, and the Midians, what we call the Midianites, in the book of Numbers, God's people were told to wipe them out, but they didn't. And so now they're a constant threat. And so the Midianites, though, they're different than most of the other nations that took charge of Israel. Did you notice the Midianites... They don't conquer Israel and rule over them. What do they do? They're not interested in that stuff. They're just interested in taking Israel's stuff. So anytime Israel would have stuff, what would Midian do? They would sweep in like locusts. And you might be at this point like, how many bugs is this guy going to talk about? But they swarm in like locusts and they take all their stuff. And what does Israel do? They'll cry, they cry out to God as we'll see in a moment. But this time, God doesn't immediately rescue them. What he does instead is he rehearses the story of his grace and how their sin has gotten them into this place. So look at verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, what we should expect at this point is that God's going to sweep in and save them. But what he does not says, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice." See, before God rescues them, he needs them to understand the severity of their sin. Because you can't understand good news without the bad news. John Owen, the Puritan, he gives nine instructions for killing sin. And the first three are this. Number one, diagnose sin's severity. Sin is severe. You have to see it as severe. Number two, you have to grasp sin's serious consequences. The Midianites are taking your stuff time and time again. Grasp the seriousness of the consequences. And then three, be convinced of your guilt. What John Owen is saying is saying, look, for the first three things you need to do, a third of the things you need to do is understand how serious sin is. You need to understand the bad news before you can get to the good news. 
that you have to come face to face with your own weakness, your own inability, your own failures. And before we can really appreciate what God does for us, when he rescues us, we have to know how much we have failed him. So understanding our weakness is the way we're called to live our lives. It's important that we do that. We live in a positive society where everybody's positive and we just have good vibes and we just have good ways of thinking. But we have to understand the severity of our sin and the consequences of that. And it's in this weakness that God shows his power. See, we supply the weakness and God supplies the power. That's what he's getting at. And weakness is where God displays his power. When we look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. Fun fact, that's where Oprah got her name. Her mom misspelled Ophrah, and she got Oprah. Impress your friends with that later. Which belonged to Joash Abirazite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide from the Midianites. God displays his power in our weakness. Gideon will be Israel's next judge. And Gideon is the bridge between the very good judges of like Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, and Deborah to the just okay judges. He becomes that bridge. And where's God's next judge? Where's Israel's next judge when God finds him? Is he pumping iron at the gym? Is he calling out atheists to repentance on the street corners? Is he wrestling lions with his bare hands? God doesn't choose a stereotypical leader. He doesn't choose the strong, buff, skull-cracking dude. He chooses a guy who's hiding in a wine press because he doesn't want to beat his wheat in public. He's like the guy who hides in his mom and dad's basement making popcorn when the world is falling apart around him. He's scared. And verse 12 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, Check out how ironic this will sound. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon is a wimp. He's a wuss. Yet the angel of the Lord refers to him as a mighty man of valor. Why? See, so much in Christian circles, when we told this story, we focused on the latter half of that statement. But if you look at the first half of that statement, why is he a mighty man of valor? The Lord is with you. Then he calls him a mighty man of valor. Did you catch that? So Gideon then questions God. He says, hey, how can you say you're with us? And how can you, when all these bad things are happening, the Midianites are here, and then how can you say I'm a mighty man of valor when I come from like the smallest tribe inside the smallest tribe? And he says, how could you possibly save Israel when I'm a nobody? But again, verse 16, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. 
but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Gideon is weak. He's scared. And he's hesitant. Much like Moses was. But it's precisely in his weakness that God will display his power. Gideon's not strong. He's not buff. He's not a skull-cracking dude. He's a guy making popcorn in his mom's basement. But God is strong. And the difference is, the only thing that makes any difference for Gideon is that the Lord will be with him. If you and I are going to live a life of weakness, and live out of that weakness, the only assurance we need is that God will be with us. Think about this. When Jesus leaves his disciples at the end of Matthew, and he gives them this incredible, seemingly impossible task to tell the whole world about him, And the only assurance he gives them is what? I will be with you to the end of the age. God wants to use you as hesitant as you are, as scared as you are, as weak as you are, to stand in the gray zone we find ourselves in to go behind enemy lines, to punch the devil in his mouth. And he sends you, it feels like at times, like water pistols into hell. But the assurance he gives you is that I will be with you. And that's all you need. That's all I need. Is that the God of the universe will be with me. And Gideon, multiple times, will be hesitant, afraid, and weak. He's not a hero. He's not. Multiple times, he asks God for signs to make sure that God is with him. One time, he makes the angel of the Lord a meal, and he says, hey, if, you're, if this is really God, I'm going to bring you out a meal. If you could just stick around, I'm going to make you this meal, and if you could just kind of eat it, and I know it's from God, and the angel of the Lord touches it, and it disappears. Another time, he puts out a fleece. Twice he does, does this. It says, God, if this is really you, make the fleece wet in the morning and the ground around it dry, and that happens. God does it, which is remarkable that God would do it at all. Like, if it was me, I'd be, if I was God, I'd be like, forget you. I'm going to go find somebody else. And he says, okay, well, next, next time, fleece dry, the rest of the ground wet. And God does it again. And again, if it was like one of my kids, I was like, go to your room. I'm done with you. How many times have I got to t- ask you to empty the trash cans? I'm just going to do it myself. But he doesn't. And then God commands him to tear down his father's altar to Baal and to chop up the Asherah pole. And what does Gideon do? He goes at night because in verse 27, he says he's too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it during the day. 
He's a wimp. He's a coward. And later, Gideon still is afraid. So God says, hey, what I want you to do is go into the camps of the Midianites and, and just start listening. And he goes and he listens and he hears a guy tell about a dream, a soldier tell about a dream about how God, Israel's God, has given the Midianites into Gideon's hands. And Dale Ralph Davis, he comments on this in his commentary on Judges, was excellent commentary. He says, evidently, obedience was essential and heroism optional. God isn't looking for heroes. He's looking for servants. He isn't asking you to be heroic. He's asking you to be obedient and to serve him. And it's in servants he displays his power. See, the Midianites had somewhere over probably like 125,000, 130,000 soldiers. And Gideon, when he gets all the troops together, gets many people together to help him fight the Midianites, you know how many he gets? 32,000. So that's like 100,000 less. So just playing sheer numbers, they're going to lose. Like each guy has to kill, I don't know, three or four guys to make this thing happen. And we all have to survive. But you know what God says? It's too many. So verse 2 of chapter 7, look at this. He says, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your, their hand. Lest Israel boast over me. Listen to this. Lest Israel's going to say, my own hand has saved me. God says, too many. So he tells every man, Gideon tells every man, hey, if you're afraid, go home. Which Gideon should have grabbed his sword and went too. But he says, hey, every, if you're afraid, go home. And he's left with 10,000. And God still says, too many. So Gideon takes him down to the water. And God says, every man who drinks out of the water, who gets on their knees and laps the water like a dog, that's what I want. Like the most civilized guys, right? The smartest guys in the room. The guys who don't cup the water and drink it. The guys who get on their knees and lick it. Those are the guys I want. And it's not because, like, those are the manly dudes. It's because, like, those are the, like, these guys? They can't even drink water right. How are they going to hold up a sword? You know how many he's left with? 300. And why does God do this? Because he wants to display his power in Israel's weakness. See, God is about God. And he wants the glory for saving them. See, the reason why God works in your weakness is so that he'll get the glory. Not me. Not you. God's not asking you to be a hero. He's just asking you to be obedient. So you might be hesitant. You might not see the way out. You might not feel strong enough to do what he's asking you to do. But God wants you this way. Weak. Hesitant. Humble. Depending on him. Because he wants to be the one who gets glory for your life. You might not see the way for it. You might not see how it's going to happen. But God's asking you to take just one Step of obedience at a time and get a front row seat to him working through you.
And so what Gideon does, he divides up the men, the 300 men in three companies. So there's 100 guys each. And they, what they do is they go at nighttime in the middle of the night and they surround the Midian camp. And they're going to blow trumpets and smash jars. So pick up in verse 20 of chapter 7. Check this out. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. And they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place. Nobody charged. Nobody ran into the camp. And all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. Midianite dudes are just going out and they just start killing each other. And who does that? The Lord. God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things for his glory. In 1949, there was revival that swept across Scotland. And people were coming to Jesus left and right, all over the place. There's absolute revival. And when researchers look back to find out how it all started, you know what they found? It started with two old ladies in their 80s praying multiple hours a day. Two old ladies started a revival. God used a, started a revival through two old ladies praying for hours a day. Ordinary people. See, often we fall for the stereotypes. We think God uses the strong. We think God uses the visionary types or the entertaining or the glamorous or the influencers. God can use those people, but those aren't the people he normally uses. And that's good news because he normally uses ordinary people and it's good news because you and I are ordinary so you and I may want to be among the best and the brightest, but time and time again, God doesn't use the best and the brightest. Why? Because we'll be tempted to give them the glory that God deserves. So he uses nomads like Abraham, shepherds like Moses and David, virgin girls like Mary, fishermen like Peter, carpenters like Joseph, hesitant, scared Weak men like Gideon and two old ladies in Scotland. Just ordinary people taking small steps of obedience and God does extraordinary things through them. So you look at 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, Paul says, but he said, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in what? Strength? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Whew, that's a word for the American church right there. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was able to boast in his weakness because he knew that that is where God displays his power. Look, let me just say this for a second. This is for free. I do not think that we're going to deal with like Roman Colosseum levels of persecution anytime soon in the church. But you are going to see more and more pressure on the church in America. And persecution will come. 
But if Paul's right, bring it on. Because that's when God's going to work. Not in power, but in weakness. Paul provided the weakness. God in Christ provided the power. But the fact of the matter is we aren't content with weakness. We're told we have to be strong. You can't be vulnerable or transparent because then people are going to hold it against you. Oh, you can't let them see your flaws. Oh, no, 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 because they'll use it against you. Oh, you have to be perfect and you have to be good at everything. You need to have well-behaved children, but also you can't discipline them too much because you also need them to be your best friend. You have to be perfect, the perfect parent. Wow, so easy. Thank you for that. You can't share your sin struggles or people won't think you're a good Christian. You can't say sorry to the friend you hurt because that will mean that you'll have to admit that you are wrong and then all of a sudden, at that point, not all the time your friend has known you, but at that point, then they'll know you don't walk on water. And we do this to our leaders too, right? We can't have leaders who show compassion to the other side of the aisle. We need leaders who are going to destroy the opposition. And what this really reveals is that we don't believe God shows power in weakness. And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're a Christian, but you're skeptical of what the Bible says about this, and you just, you just don't see this as realistic. And you feel like you have to maintain this perception of strength. But that's exactly what it is, perception. So you feel like you need to make everyone think you're strong all the time. Thanks, that's what a bar Real low bar right there. Thank you so much. I got to be strong all the time. And when you do that, you have to make sure you keep everyone's perception of you as this strong, buff, perfect Christian, perfect mom, perfect dad, perfect employee, perfect person. And what ends up happening is you'll become exhausted because you always have to be on your toes to be perfect. You can't let your guard down ever. And you'll never have deep relationships. Why? Because you're never vulnerable. And you'll end up being resentful when others don't see you as strong or as strong as you think you are. They don't buy into that perception and you'll be resentful towards them. Or maybe you're more like me. You become bitter when others see someone else as stronger than you. But most importantly, you'll never get an opportunity to see God's power on display in your life. Gideon is scared and hesitant, but he's obedient. And that's all God's asking you to be. Be obedient. And he says, that's where I'll show my power. You provide the weakness, I'll provide the power, he says. And you might say, this kind of life will never change the world. We can't change the world living in weakness with God's supplied power. And I would say, then what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? Isn't that what we find in Jesus? Jesus didn't come as a strong, buff, skull-cracking conqueror of a dude, but as a poor carpenter. And the Bible tells us actually he wasn't even that special to look at. He wasn't even that good looking of a dude. And he didn't go to the same schools as all the Pharisees. He didn't have the same degrees as everybody else. 
but he was obedient. And in his obedience, God showed the, his power in weakness. Jesus went to the cross weak, beaten, bruised, bloody. Why? For you and me to die for our sins. And all the, though the world looked at Jesus hanging on the cross and saw him as weak and defeated, God was showing his power by breaking the back of Satan and freeing you and me. Did that weakness change the world? Absolutely. Weak, but obedient. See, weakness is where we find that God is enough. Gideon's story, it starts really well, but it does not end well. So what happens is the people see him and they say, hey, could you be our king? And Gideon goes, no thanks. God will be your king. And we're not really sure why he's saying it that way, but he says it, which isn't the problem. The problem comes in verse 27 of chapter 8. And Gideon made an ephod of it, all the gold he collected from the people, and put it in his city, in Ophrah, not Oprah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Weakness is where we see God's provision for our lives. God provided a way for Israel to gain, sorry, obtain guidance from him. And the way he did that in the Pentateuch, in, the, in Moses' book, the first five books of the Bible, through, he said he would do that through the high priest when the high priest is wearing an ephod. So young people, an ephod is an ornate vest worn by the high priest. It's a nice vest. It's, it's ornate. It has all these like jewels and stuff on it. That is the vest. And God says, I will give guidance to Israel to the high priest when he's wearing the vest. But what, is e, what does Gideon do? He makes his own. So Gideon goes beyond his role. He goes beyond his authorization by God to be Israel's judge. And he attempts to create an alternative route to God's guidance, other than the one God gave Israel through the high priest. See, Gideon desired more than what God had provided. And Israel followed him into idolatry. And when we embrace our weakness, we rely on God's provision for our lives. And we should never try to find power outside the ways God has already provided for us. In my life as a church planner, I often fall into this. I live for the extraordinary Sundays. Songs that hit me just right. A bunch of Let's Connect cards come in. I get big offerings, lots of kids and Liberty Kids laughing and singing loudly, higher attendance, things like that. And God does show his power on those Sundays. But those Sundays are just that. They're extraordinary. They're outside the ordinary. More often than not, God just gives us ordinary Sundays. But if I focus on the extraordinary, I'll end up missing his power in the ordinary because I want more than what he's provided me. And if you're like me, you have this desire to, ha to get more than what God has provided for you. Better house, a better car, better dressed kids, whatever it might be, right? 
So we'll run after the extraordinary rather than the ordinary what God has provided for us and we'll concoct these ways to get the extraordinary and we'll build idols out of them and we'll think that God only works when it looks like this extraordinary thing. And Christians do this all the time with good things. Like music at church. Christians will run after extraordinary abilities of bands like Maverick City or Hillsong or City of Light and God can use them, but you know who God uses more often? Just ordinary bands at ordinary churches. But we run after the extraordinary. Or preaching. Technology gives us the ability to listen to nationally known voices like Tim Keller or Matt Chandler or Tony Evans. And God uses those extraordinary preachers, and he has and will continue to use them. But God, more often than not, who's he use? Ordinary preachers in ordinary churches. We run after emotional highs. Evangelical Christians particularly, we love things like altar calls and people rededicating their life to Christ. And we go, wow, God is here. Like when we're there, we're like, God is here. I'm so thankful that I'm here. And he is there. But when we focus on his presence in the extraordinary situations, we try to replicate those things, then we don't get them. And what ends up happening is we miss when he says, where he says he's present already like the ordinary means of grace in communion in ordinary churches on an ordinary Sunday all across the world each week. God says, I'm here in communion. Don't miss me. So you can run after extraordinary. Extraordinary worship, kids' ministry, youth programs, small groups, and then they become the stereotypes for how and when God's power is at work. And God may be working there, and God can work there, but he's most often working in ordinary things, in ordinary people, in ordinary places like you and I experience day in and day out, the things he's already provided for us. You don't need better things. You don't need extraordinary things. You don't need better churches or better kids or better houses. You just need what he's already provided you. And God says, I will work there. And when we don't live out of weakness or we focus on the extraordinary, we end up missing all the ways that God shows us and the way he shows up more often. And we'll miss seeing his power at work and how he'll use ordinary weak people to bring himself glory. Because God reveals his power in our weakness to bring himself glory. Let's pray. Hey, if you're here today and you never gave your life over to Jesus, I just want to invite you to do so right now. And maybe you're not living a life of weakness because you don't think it's really possible or you haven't really ever embraced the weakness of Jesus going to the cross and dying for you, but then seeing God's power displayed. I just want to give you a moment to just ask God to forgive you and to receive Jesus. And for the rest of us, Father, may we just live out of that weakness. May we grow in our understanding and our appreciation of how you work in ordinary things, in ordinary places, in ordinary people, oftentimes like us, weak, hesitant, scared, but help us just to be obedient like your son was. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.